standing outside a Kroger store and I had a dollar and some change. I had no credit card because I had no credit. I had no money in the bank. We were making the house payment, as I said, making the car payment, making the utilities, but I didn't have enough money to feed my family. And that was a huge wake up call for me. And what I say now about my life is that all those experiences, all those challenges helped to develop empathy in me for other people and their circumstances, because I don't think I really had that. I think I was so wrapped up in my stuff and my family of origin and our money and my private education and all these things that I thought had value. Welcome to Real Stories, Journeys of Financial Wellness. I'm your host, Crystal Lugazima. Today's guest is a true inspiration, Molly McDonald. Molly has lived at both ends of the financial spectrum. As a single mom of five, she rebounded from a financial catastrophe, only to be faced several years later with a new one after a breast cancer diagnosis. She was in between jobs and was unable to start a new job as planned. Her family's already tight budget was immediately overburdened by the addition of a monthly COBRA health insurance payment coupled with the loss of her income. Within months, McDonald and her family faced the potential loss of their home. At the end of treatment, when family and friends stopped delivering dinner, McDonald was forced to use a local food bank to feed her family. When McDonald's quest to get help was met with blank stares, she became determined to give help to others suffering from lost income as a result of their diagnosis and treatment. In 2006, she founded the Pink Fund, which provides 90 days of non-medical financial aid to cover the basic cost of living expenses, such as health insurance, housing, transportation, and utilities. By providing this financial bridge, the Pink Fund helps to meet basic needs while decreasing stress levels. These factors help breast cancer patients focus on healing and improve survivorship outcomes and quality of life. Since its founding, the Pink Fund has made over $6.8 million in bill payments on behalf of breast cancer survivors in active treatment. Let's meet Molly McDonald and hear her inspiring story. Molly, I'm so glad you've been able to join us today on Real Stories. And before we get started, um, I know as we get into your story, we're going to talk about a profound life event that happened for you back in 2005. Prior to that, I was wondering if you might share a little bit about your life at the time and specifically what was your relationship with money prior to 2005? Yeah, so I grew up in Gross Point, Michigan. Um, where there was a considerable amount of wealth, but it was quiet money. People didn't spend their money or show their money. My parents always um, talked about the old quiet money. And I had the benefit, I had a public school education, but then I had my first two years um, in college were at a private girls' school out east, where um, 
I missed the boys, and so I transferred to the University of Michigan and graduated from there with a degree in journalism. And in um, 1982, when I was 31, and considering a, a change in my professional status, the Detroit Free Press was undergoing a merger with the business operations with the Detroit News. And while I was an executive at that time um, with the Free Press, it was clear that I wasn't going to get the job when they merged these business operations. So I started looking for work outside of, of Detroit and got close to getting a job in Chicago. But I met this man on a blind date who um, lived in Bloomfield Hills, where my parents always said, we always said that was the new loud money. We used to talk about that. And uh, his father had been in line uh, to be president of Ford Motor Company. He had a Harvard, edu Harvard uh, Law School education. At the time that I married him and met him, I met him and married him in nine weeks because I had to make this decision about my career. And I felt that I, my fertility was waning and I wanted to have children. And I made a decision to marry him primarily because I knew he could financially support me and um, provide a lifestyle that I thought I wanted, which was a lot more money than the kind of life I had with my family of origin. So I married him um, and we lived that life that I tell people, it's people who buy lottery tickets or gamble, think that if they, you know, have the big win or gamble to get the big win, that they will have the big house and the luxury cars and luxury vacations and, you know, first the first class life, all this stuff. And so I lived that life with him until 1997. Um, we had five children together. We had five children in nine years. And in 1997, the children were four to 13. And I drove up the driveway to our home and saw a small note tacked on the front door about the size of a rack card. And I'd never seen anything tacked to front doors where we lived. I mean, that just didn't happen. There was a service entrance on the side of the house. And when I walked in and pulled it off, I read that the house was going to be auctioned off at a sheriff's sale in 30 days. And that evening, I had a very unpleasant conversation with um, my husband, during which I learned a deal that he was in hot pursuit, among other unsavory activities in his life. Um, he was fronting with our own financial assets. And we were, in fact, $15 million in debt. And the home was auctioned off. He lost his business. The cars were repossessed. And within a month of me finding that note on the door, I um, sold everything I could and moved out of our home, rented a house for cash. I took all the money that I was able to kind of cobble together. So I sold the Steinway concert grand for cash and I liquidated my IRAs from when I was single and I cashed in my whole life insurance policy. And then I sold a lot of my jewelry and clothes. And that was that was the big aha for me. All this stuff that I thought had so much value that made me a person of worth. And all my values were misplaced in the stuff at that time in my life. And so here, I, my best example of this is I, my daytime dresses in the mid-90s were about $2,500 each. And I bundled up all these clothes, took them to a resale shop, and 
they called me about 90 days later and they said, well, we've sold almost everything, but there's a few things left. Do you want to donate them or would you like to come get them? So I said, I'll, I'll come get them. So I walked in, picked up this dress and slid my hand down the right sleeve. It was a long sleeve silk dress and the price tag on the dress that I'd paid $2,500 for was $60 and I was going to get 30, which would have filled up my gas tank. So I drive home and I'm stopping at the stoplight in this, I'm in the right-hand lane and this little red Honda Civic pulls up to my left. And at the time I had a Suburban, that car had not been repossessed yet. And so that's a tiny car and pulls right up. And in the passenger side rear window, he has a for sale by owner sign, $2,500. And I turn around and looked at that dress hanging in the back of my car. And I thought, I don't think this guy would make a deal for me give me the car for the dress. And so I kept that dress for a very, very long time hanging in my closet as a reminder of how, you know, the things that we hold on to so tightly when we desperately need financial resources are basically worthless. So I rented a house for cash. I transitioned my children from private to public school and I reentered the workforce and I'd been out 12 years. So in the 12 years between 1985, when I, I married in 82, I stopped working. I did a lot of freelance writing. Um, I was a speech writer for a very significant ad executive um, whose business, he had the Chrysler account in the 60s and it actually Mad Men, this show was patterned a lot after this particular agency and their work in the automotive business. And so anyway, I was his speech writer and I was ghost writing his memoir um, and then he had a stroke, so that that ended that project. But so I, and by ninety by eighty five, I had my second child, so it was becoming a little difficult to do some of this freelance work. So I had to reenter the workforce. And between eighty five and ninety seven, the way work had been delivered just changed completely. You know, I I could type and hit send an email, but I had no computer skills really, other than keyboarding. And the newspaper business also had started to change dramatically. And so to re-enter, at that point I was 46, and 46, 27 years ago was old. And I talk about now, um, I'll be 72 in January, and I could still run for president. I mean, I, I feel like everything has changed with ageism, and I still feel very youthful and vital. But back then, 46, it was, that was old. and. Um, I had a really hard time finding work. So I did a lot of freelance writing. Um, one of the funny stories I tell is that the first job that I got in freelance writing, because I had these five kids and I couldn't, I couldn't afford daycare and I couldn't afford a babysitter. And some of the things that I did was I, I basically um, traded stuff for services. So the, the little preschool that my youngest son went to was a private preschool owned by one woman. And I couldn't pay the tuition and I had nowhere to put him. And so I gave her, I traded an oriental rug. It kind of bartered, you know, I had this oriental rug that was too big for this house that I downsized into. So she took the rug, which I think at the time had an $18,000 value to it. And the, and the preschool tuition was about that. So that was interesting. I did a lot of bartering, but this woman comes over to my house and um, she hands me a floppy disk, which I'd never seen. So for those of you who've never seen one, it's that kind of square, like three and a half inch square plastic. And it looks like it has a tiny record on the inside of it. She's telling me that, you know, you're going to 
dump this content on the disk and then you're going to download whatever you write on there. And it was, I had no idea what she was talking about. So she hands me the disk and I'm shaking it over the wastebasket. And she looks at me and she says, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to dump the content, but it won't come out. Yeah. And I tell this story a lot because I recalled at the free press, a woman came in who was about 45, 46, looking like a deer in headlights. And when this happened to me, I, rec- I remembered that she had been through a life change, like I had was experiencing, right? And so many of people who use Green Path, I'm sure, have these dramatic life-changing experiences, whether it's the death of a spouse, the loss of a job, a divorce, an illness, things that can happen to any of us at any stage in life that can put us on a financial precipice about to go over the edge. And over the edge could be, you know, bankruptcy, homelessness, all terrible things. So anyway, I started writing. I also used the money that I cobbled together to hire attorneys. So I hired a divorce attorney. I hired a bankruptcy attorney and avoided personal bankruptcy. So I'm in this rented house that I paid cash for and the landlord wants to sell it. Well, I didn't have, you know, an employment history. I, my credit was shot and I wasn't divorced. So I had all kinds of problems in owning anything. And so um, that was really frightening because I thought, we're going to be homeless. I mean, I've got these five kids. By that point, they were five to 14. I'm alone. I don't have a partner. My mother was 80 and my dad had passed away and I had a sister out on the West Coast. So there was just no resources for me to kind of shore us up. So the landlord couldn't show or sell show or sell the house for another six months according to the terms of the lease and he wanted me to buy the house which i could not do but my mother um because she didn't want us moving in with her was able to procure a mortgage at 80 years old she got a 30-year mortgage and i made the payments so um i was able to make the payments by that point and then finally in 2001 I got a job, like a regular corporate job, and I was making 60000 a year. And I remember going in for the interview, and I just turned 50. So I was terrified that somebody would find out how old I was, even though they couldn't ask that question. And I had a, um, a simple black dress with a long black matching coat that I bought for myself at Ann Taylor, kind of an interview outfit. And I, my mantra to myself, because they had me in this room where there were no windows, and I walked in there and there were about three fans in the room, like these tiny little clip fans, you know, that you could, and I thought, is this a trick? Like, are they waiting to see if I'm going to have a hot flash? Do they know how old I am? But, you know, so I was saying to myself, under no circumstances, you know, fan your face or remove your jacket. And I got the job. And I was not suited for that job. I, uh, it was the job description did not match the actual job. So I was there until 9-11. And then um, I lost my job. I got another job in another corporation. That corporation uh, was sold to another company and I lost that job. And so by that point, I thought I all my behavioral tests said you should be in sales. 
which I didn't think very highly of salespeople, but I thought I've got to be in sales because I have these five young kids and now I have this aging mother. I'm in that sandwich generation between needing to care for her, needing to care for them. And I needed money. And my former husband, that any child support he paid was, we just never knew we could count on it. And I didn't have any alimony. So we were living probably about 250% of the federal poverty level at that time in 2004. So I went into sales. I was selling large and grand format graphics and I was really good at it. And I was putting together marketing programs for companies to kind of rebrand them using graphic design, huge banners, huge wallpaper installations, wrapping vehicles, et cetera. And a company um, out of Kentucky was was outbidding me and I was in Detroit and it was a union shop. So anyway, talked to them, suggested they hire me and we opened a woman-owned division of of their business in Detroit, which they agreed to do. And so I quit my job and, and I had my annual mammogram, never thinking that that would result in a callback. So about a week after the mammogram, I get this call from the hospital where it had been performed. And this lady is telling me, well, we've seen some spots on the mammogram and it's probably nothing, just calcifications that come with aging. By that point, I think I was I was 53. And so I went in for a biopsy, had the biopsy. And on Friday, April 1st, 2005, I'd flown to New York City to meet with Major League Baseball because this company that I was now representing was on the short list to get the bid for the all-star game that was going to be played in Detroit that July of 2005. I was feeling really hopeful. Um, I had health insurance. My kids had been on my child for a while. They had had to use uh, subsidized lunches at school. We got scholarships for camps. I mean, we were living like many Americans live. And it's a lot of work to manage all that stuff and get those services. We didn't qualify for, you know, cash support or food support or those things. But we were able to kind of cobble together some other services to keep us going. So on the way to the airport, I'm in the airport, I'm at Metro, and I see this woman in this beautiful dress with a matching coat. And I commented to her on it. And she said, oh, I'm a breast oncologist. I'm, I'm headed to Seattle for a conference. And I remember thinking, well, this is foreshadowing that I'm being prepared that I have breast cancer. So I had my meeting with a woman named Ann Ochi in, in um, the Major League Baseball offices on Park Avenue in New York City and jumped in a cab to go back to the airport and my cell phone rang. By that time, it was a little clam phone. I popped it open and it was my OBGYN who had delivered all five of my children. But I had early stage disease. So while my disease was unlikely to take my life, what it did take was my livelihood. I was no longer suited to really operate this office for this company. Um, and I felt ethically that I had to let them know that I'd been diagnosed. And I didn't fully understand what the diagnosis was going to entail in terms of a treatment plan, but it ended up being two surgeries and six weeks of daily radiation. And I would have been unable to work during that five-month period, you know, or maybe a week after each surgery, and certainly not during the radiation, I was really fatigued. So now I don't have a job. 
and I have a Cobra premium of $1,300 a month. And um, I don't qualify for Medicaid because at the time it was predicated on my previous year's income, which knocked me out. And I'm remarried to this wonderful man, um, but he was, he had a, he's a piano technician on the concert stage for performing arts. And so his income was minimal. I mean, we needed, my income represented about 70% of what we needed and his about 30%. So with his, we could pay the COBRA, but we couldn't make the house payment. So now this house that my mother had rented for cash and procured a mortgage on um, goes into foreclosure. So now I'm faced with, now I'm really, you know, SOL. Like I, there's, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. So I, I, I was frozen. I think a lot of people, a lot of people in financial crises or health crises or any kind of crisis in their life, they almost become immobile. There's a period like when you're, you just can't take action. You're so overwhelmed. Your, your brain and your emotions are so flooded that you don't think clearly. But by the time we were getting close to, um, you know, pretty serious situation with the house, I went to my mother who at that time had some had dementia and wasn't quite sure who I was, but she liked me. And I explained the situation that I, she kept saying this, do you know Molly? And I'm like, yes, because <laughs> I'm her. And she would say, well, she has breast cancer and I, I want to help her. And I said, well, she's, she needs help making her house payment. And she's, her house is in foreclosure. So my mother, um, we contacted my mother's lawyer and we contacted my sister and they agreed that they could front me the money to pull the house out of foreclosure. And by that point, I had finished treatment and I was re-entering the workforce and I was going to be able to make that house payment. But at the end of my treatment, in the midst of all this, when um, it was over and people stopped delivering food, which in our case seemed to be lasagna in every form imaginable, I didn't have any money for food. So we had, we'd rescued the house. I was making the payments. I had negotiated with my, um, it was actually Ford Credit. I had a leased vehicle and they extended kindly, ex based on my circumstances, extended my lease by eight months. But my car payment was late. And the house payment was under my mom's name. So that was her credit that was affected. But my credit tanked again. So by 2005, my credit was rising. At, but then I get this diagnosis. And I can't, the car payment's like 58 days late for six months and, you know, everything's tanking and the utilities are late. So that now, that was a mess. Um, no food. I remember this and I'm sure some of the people that use the wonderful services of Green Path have experienced this. I, I was standing outside a Kroger store and I had a dollar and some change. I had no credit card because I had no credit. I had no money in the bank. We were making the house payment, as I said, making the car payment, making the utilities, but I didn't have enough money to feed my family. And that was a huge wake up call for me. And what I say now about my life is that all those experiences, all those challenges helped to develop empathy in me for other people and their circumstances because I don't think I really had that. I think I was so wrapped up in my stuff and my 
family of origin and our money and my private education and all these things that I thought had value. And I mean, they did have value to an extent, but they had no monetary value. They couldn't really help me in the situation I was in. So I ended up using a Gleaner's food bank pantry for four months. And that was really interesting. Um, I was really grateful for it, but it was the most humbling experience I've ever had. But it also taught me about food insecurity and that hunger and food insecurity are two completely different things. And I remember talking to people about that um, for about two years after I used the food bank, when I was back on my feet, I would go to these events and there'd be all this leftover food. And I thought this is this is this probably what happened during the depression for people. I, I kind of wish I had like a tote bag that I could shove the rolls in and the wrapper crackers. And it was so hard to see that this food was going to go to waste. But the upshot on that was that I shared my story at actually a Gleaners Food Bank uh, women's power breakfast that was held at Somerset Mall, I think in 2010 or 11. And the woman sitting next to me was working in development at uh, Gleaners. And I mentioned something about, you know, boy, I sure wish I could take all this food home. And then I shared that I'd st- I'd stood in line at the food bank. So the upshot was they asked me if I would be a speaker at one of their breakfasts. And I did that. And it was very powerful because people don't understand that I call it like the lemony snicket series of unfortunate events that a person's life can change on a dime. You know, you can have a great education. You can have been raised by a healthy you know, financially comfortable family. You could have married a wealthy man. But, you know, you did that, divorce, job loss, um, health crisis. It's kind of a home run almost to, to homelessness for many folks. And where do you turn and where do you get help? So I did this videotape for Gleaners Food Bank called Nourishing Hope. And I think it was a real good story for people who would go down to the food bank and certainly at this breakfast where I spoke to understand that you can't make assumptions about people and their finances and that all of us are really at risk for financial challenges. Your journey had reached a point where you were starting to really contemplate what you might do for other people that were in the situation you were kind of regaining your your financial stability it seems right at, at that well, point yeah. prior to regaining it so i when you're in the treatment waiting rooms particularly in radiation you're you're waiting for your appointment time which is pretty quick or in your if you're in a chemo chair you kind of see some of the same people all the time you know i mean it's not you cross over but um so I started listening, talking to these women, and some of them had much harsher, longer treatment protocols that were going to outlast their Family Medical Leave Act benefit, their FMLA. And so they were going to stop treatment and go back to work because the choices they were having to make were make like they could they weren't going to be able to make their house payment if they lost their job 
or they were going to pull their kids home from college, or they were going to liquidate their IRAs, or they were going to put the house on the market. They were making life-altering and financially life-altering decisions that I felt were unnecessary if there could be some kind of financial bridge to support them. So I checked with the social worker where I was getting treatment. There was nobody who could make a mortgage payment. Nobody could make a utility payment. The best they could do was give me uh, like a $50 Kroger card. Um, but nobody was going to be able to make some of these critical non-medical bill payments. Once my car lease was up and I had to go get another vehicle, my credit still hadn't rebounded. And I was still working part-time jobs because I did not, from 2005 when I was in treatment, I didn't have a full-time job again until 2010. So I was working freelance. Uh, I was a contractor. So I, I have to turn this car in and I don't have any money for a down payment on a vehicle. I don't have a credit card and I have bad credit. And I remember driving to this dealership and thinking, am I going to come home with a car? Are they going to let me have a car? And if they don't, how am I going to get home? And is there a bus I could take? Or maybe my husband would come get me. But I just remember thinking, if I don't have a car, I'm not going to be able to get a job. I mean, in many places in our country, there isn't public transit. And that's one of the things with the with transportation and what we do at the Pink Fund is pay, those car payments are so critical to these people, not only going to work, but going to treatment or going to the grocery, anything they need to do. So because of my credit, I did get a car. I got a kind of a beat up uh, Chrysler Pacifica. I mean, it looked okay. But the interest rate was 29%. So I was upside down right out of the gate. And when I went to finally sell that car, many years later, I still had to pay an additional $3,000 over the value of the car. So that was upsetting. With the Gleaners Food Bank, what, I, what I'm proud of is that I shared that story transparently and that I raised, helped raise $140,000 for food support, you know, from that one event. And then after that, this was the curious part, people, Girl Scout troops and Boy Scout troops and various church groups, youth groups, um, synagogue, whatever, they, they, they go down to Gleaners and they get a tour and they would show that video. I mean, they don't show that same video anymore, but they did then. And so I would get these phone calls occasionally from people who started out and said, um, we were down at cleaners with the Boy Scout troop. And I, I just don't know why you didn't tell us you needed food. When people in need don't tell people they need food. It's humiliating. And it, but the last time I went to the food bank, as I was, and back then it wasn't client choice. So now it's client choice. It's more set up like a grocery store. But back then you got a box of food based on your family size and you could indicate what your preferences would be. So I'm approaching this line 
And I see these women handing out the boxes at the front of the line and they look familiar to me, but I wasn't, I couldn't place them. I wasn't sure where I'd seen them. And as, as I started to get closer, I realized they were some of the moms um, where my boys went to high school and I could not face them. And I left without any food. And I, I cried the whole way home. I was so mad at myself that my pride got in the way of feeding my family. And that's still really hard to talk about. How did that experience, uh, you were talking about food insecurity, you were um, starting to, to recognize the, the challenges that so many people faced when faced with a serious diagnosis. How did that eventually turn into where you eventually got to today? which was oh. founding an organization that, yeah. that helps people in those situations. Yeah. So I, I went home to my new husband who I call Tom Terrific. We will be married 21 years in May. And um, I call him Tom Terrific because I always say, who marries a middle-aged woman with five children, night sweats, and a mildly demented mother? Like you're either terrific or you're insane. So um, I went home and I said, Tom, we have to start an organization that's going to help people pay their non-medical bills for 90 days. We'll align it sort of with the F Family Medical Leave Act, knowing that doesn't have to be taken continuously, but it would provide 90 days of financial relief, which would give patients and their families some time to, you know, perhaps reach out to a green path or work with a financial counselor or find other resources, but at least would, would be more than a $50 Kroger card. So he looked at me. And he said, I don't know what you're thinking because we just rescued our house from foreclosure and we can hardly pay our own bills. What makes you think we're going to pay somebody else's bills? And I said, well, I believe I can. And so now with post Ted Lasso, for people who have seen that show where Ted Lasso, the soccer coach, has the believe sign in the locker room. Um, I talk about that. But at that time in 2005, I, I referenced the Henry Ford quote. Um, and being from Detroit, I love this, which is whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. And I thought I could. So for people who have read or remember that little engine that could book, you know, the little train is going up the mountain. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I know I can. And I just thought I could. And people thought I was crazy. They looked at me like I had two heads. And I just believed I could do this. So we uh, at the time... I had started to, um, I was still freelancing and I developed an application and we just started working a little bit. So what I did is I traded, I had a beautiful dining room table from my former life that I gave to the graphic designer for our heart and ribbon logo. And then I got a donated website where it's 2006 right now. And the medical writer at the Detroit Free Press who I cold called her, I wasn't, she was there when I was there, but I was kind of leaving and she was coming. And I cold called her and told her what I was trying to do and that I thought she needed to write a front page story about my efforts and she agreed. And so she wrote that story and 27 newspapers picked it up and it was published October 2nd, 2006. And so that's what launched us. Um, by the spring of 2005, we'd raised enough money to help one patient. We made her rent and car payment for 90 days. We were completely all volunteer until 2012, at which time we hired a part-time program manager. And then by 2012, uh, the second quarter of the year, 
uh, we had a board of directors. So I went to the board and I, and I actually got fired from a job because my employer didn't like it that I was using my lunch hour and weekends to go out and to speak about my efforts with the pink fund. And that individual told me I had to make a choice. And I said, no, sir, you have to make a choice because I need this job. I'm, I have to have a job. And so anyway, I was, I was terminated for that. But the gift in that job, in that particular job, is it was a mortgage company. And I decided to pattern our application after procuring a mortgage, but without pulling a credit report. So I wanted to make sure that the people we were helping really were in financial need and that we could use supporting documentation to verify their circumstances. So that was really the gift of that job. And I'm so thankful I had that job. I learned a lot about um, mortgages and financing. And even though, you know, I don't think I was meant to be there forever. But by that point, by the time I left, um, I went to the board and I said, okay, I can't do this as a volunteer anymore. So if this organization is going to go on, I have to have some salary, some help. And so they voted a, a small stipend for me. And I've been an employee of the Pink Fund then since 2012. So I, I'm contractually employed. Um, we have a human resources person. All my compensation, all that stuff is managed by the board. And the way the, our program works is that people apply and then they must be, their household income must be at or below 500% of the federal poverty level. And that chart is on our website. They must be in active treatment for breast cancer, which is mastectomy, radiation, lumpectomy, chemotherapy, but it does not include um, what's called an aromatase inhibitor, which we refer to as an AI, which is a oral pill that you take for five to 10 years uh, to reduce the recurrence of the disease. And then we verify, um, they send their tax returns, copies of bills they want paid, they do sign a HIPAA. We're not under HIPAA because we don't provide medical services, but we want them to know that their information is held in confidence. And then um, I think we have a letter from their treating oncologist indicating what stage and grade of disease they're at and who referred them, et cetera. So we've paid out, I think we're close to 6.8 million in bills since May of 2007. And this last month for the bills that we, I wrote checks for January of about 97,000. Actually, I think it was 97,000, but I think it got pushed to about 106,000. So we will probably do a million two in bill payments this fiscal year ending next June, 2023. As, as you've worked with these individuals that you've, and your organization have so amazingly helped, what, what have you learned and observed from that? Well, What's really interesting is the diversity of the population of people we serve. So we have helped people. Um, we had a Hispanic woman in Texas who had a second grade education. She could not speak English and she was working as a certified nursing assistant for $7.95 an hour. Her daughter helped fill out her application. That was heartbreaking for me. Um, I feel very strongly about paying people fair wages and that really troubled me. We had an Asian circus performer in California um, who was a high ropes performer. And because of her mastectomy, she could not perform. She literally could not perform her job for months. And then she had to have chemo and radiation. So she was, she had a long treatment protocol. 
we help somebody who is living in a storage unit, somebody who's lived in a hotel. There was a grandmother who had moved in with her daughter in Kansas. We helped a front desk clerk at a Hampton Inn. Um, and then we've helped people who have PhDs who are employed making maybe, they fall within that 500% of the federal poverty level. We helped a Syrian immigrant who came to the US uh, to work with an architectural firm in New York City and brought her husband and parents and daughter with her and then was diagnosed. The diversity of the population is just remarkable. And that again, having grown up, you know, white community of Gross Point, you know, coming of age in the late 60s, this this challenge in my life changed me dramatically for the good. And I'm so grateful that I lost all that stuff I thought had value because now I know it really matters. One of the things that I've heard you talk about is the concept of financial toxicity. I wonder if you might uh, elaborate on that a little bit. So um, in the oncology space, which is cancer, the cancer world, um, we know that cancer treatments are physically toxic. So the drugs that we take to um, prolong and, and save our lives have lots of unpleasant side effects like um, gastrointestinal issues, peripheral neuropathy, which is numbing of fingers, toes. Sometimes somebody's legs become so numb they, they can't walk for a while. And then there's um, mental fog, which is known as cognitive impairment or chemo brain is kind of what everybody calls it. But there's this other side effect, this other part, which is the financial side effect. So in our healthcare system here in the United States, we have insurance and all insurance policies come with a deductible. And that deductible can vary based on the premium you've selected and the coverage that you've selected. But it can be really high. You know, for some families, it's 10,000 um, a year, sometimes more. And then you have co-pays. So, you know, when you go to the pharmacy to pick up your drugs, you may have a copay of $5 or $10 or $20 or $100. It all varies. So you have these medical costs. So you have the deductible, then you add in the copays. But when things become really dicey for patients and families is when either the patient or the spouse, partner, caregiver who supports the patient loses their income. So maybe during COVID, we saw a lot of job loss, more job loss than of, of not only the patient who was like physically unable to work, but of the caregiver or spouse or partner. Um, so when those two collide, that's when it's really intense. And so I describe this as a Jenga game. And so for people who have played Jenga or not, you have, I forget, I think there's about 36 blocks. You could be wrong on that. But anyway, you have this wood, these wood rectangular pieces that it's a tower. And I like to think about our lives like that. Most people carefully try to assemble their lives and keep it stable. We all have challenges, but if you think of your life as this Jenga tower and you get it, you have a health crisis and immediately the foundation of your life is rocked. And so one of those pieces is just yanked out. And by the way, it's not the middle one. So there are three on each row. And so that's rocked out. And then you find out that that insurance policy that you elected because you could afford the monthly premium has a huge deductible. 
that you didn't count on because cancer or some other illness wasn't wasn't going to happen to you. So now you another piece pulled out, and then you find out that the treatment plan is going to be long and require you to go to a national cancer hospital where parking is going to be $20 a pop. And by the way, you're going to have at least six weeks of radiation treatment. So you're looking at hundreds of dollars there. And then you are told by your oncologist, which is the doctor that treats you for cancer, that you know you probably are not going to be able to work for two or three days after every chemotherapy treatment. And maybe you're an hourly worker. And maybe you don't even have the Federal Medical Leave Act benefit at all. Maybe you're working in a hair salon or you're a server in a restaurant. So all of a sudden, this life that you've tried to carefully build uh, is full of holes. And on top of that, when you play Jenga, though, you keep putting those pieces on top. So the pressure is building. And now your life is kind of leaning like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I mean, things are just moving and shaking very. It's all about to fall apart. So I describe the work that we do of simply coming along and putting scaffolding around the family. We can't fix this problem. Our healthcare system is so complex and so hard to understand. And you've got stakeholders and stockholders and providers and insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers and pharmacies and prior authorizations, which mean you can't get your treatment until your insurance company agrees to it. I mean, it's just so hard. So we call our program a financial bridge. We're not going to fix the problem. We're not going to fix your life. We're going to provide you with 90 days of rest, financial respite. So in light of that reality that what you describe is clearly a systemic challenge that, that we all face or might face, um, what advice would you have for someone, and I'm speaking in a general sense, not necessarily with a specific diagnosis that might qualify for the support that your organization might be able to offer, but just anyone with a serious medical diagnosis, what money or other advice might you offer to them? Oh, so the first thing um, a patient needs to find out is, do you have a financial counselor or navigator? in the provider setting. When I say the provider setting, I'm talking about in the hospital where your treatments are gonna be delivered, where your diagnostic testing is gonna be delivered. That's number one. If they have a financial counselor or navigator, it is possible if that person is trained well, that they may be able to go in and help optimize their insurance, which means they might be able to reduce some of the financial barriers in the insurance by changing the plan. So that's number one, you must, and you must be your own best advocate. And if you don't have an advocate or you're a shy, introverted person, bring your most bold, aggressive, bulldog friend, family member who will speak for you. Often patients, uh, regardless of what their health crisis is, are afraid to ask questions for fear that they won't get the best treatment, that they'll offend the physician. Um, and, and so they don't say anything. So the first step, ask to speak. Do you have a financial navigator? Or counselor with whom I can speak. Number one. Number two, what services do the hospital have um, in terms of charity care or support? Sometimes I can get a parking voucher. Um, take all those $50 Kroger gift cards you can. Then 
you might have a social worker, so financial navigator first, social worker or patient navigator. And hospitals are really beginning to understand how valuable these services are because it affects their bottom line. If a patient doesn't show up for that chemo chair, that revenue goes uncollected. So they don't want that either. And they want the patient to get the best care. The other suggestion I have is um, there, there are a number of services that are working in the healthcare system, private companies. One is called TaylorMed, one is Atlas Health. And the providers purchase these services and they basically use a software system to plug in what your diagnosis is, what your treatment plan is, and I'm not talking just oncology, any disease state, um, what your insurance will cover, what other costs might be affiliated or associated with your care. And like I said, parking is a big one. Um, and then what charity care there's available, not only locally, statewide, regionally, and nationally. And then the whole idea is to try to take a holistic approach financially to supporting the patient from diagnosis to treatment to recovery. But the patient, you know, if it's not offered, you have to ask. The other thing that hospitals are doing now is they're not just assuming by the way a person presents that they might not have a financial challenge. And so that was the interesting thing for me, having been reasonably educated, nobody would have ever looked at me and said that woman is going to be in line at the food bank and she's not going to be able to pay her bills. Right. They would have made an assumption. We all have these biases that, you know, based on somebody's appearance or how they speak and, and hospitals are beginning to understand that that's not, that's not accurate. So the other thing is that patients often in the beginning of a, of a treatment protocol for whatever disease state they're in, don't understand how things can change. And so they need to be assessed regularly, almost monthly for how they're doing financially. But then there's, you know, fear of, of telling people and um, embarrassment, humiliation. So it's gotta be done very carefully and with a lot of empathy. Empathy is something that uh, is central to the work that I know that we do at Green Path. And, you know, you're describing someone's sometimes most vulnerable situations that they're in a system that is often stacked against us um, but such practical advice uh, that you shared there for uh, how people might navigate these difficult times is is there anything else uh, you'd like to to share with our listeners yes so if you go to the pink fund website which is pinkfund.org you can find some of these financial tools there we have a, a thing called just diagnosed and while this is for breast cancer those those questions that we tell patients to ask are um, good for any other disease state. And so often we try to give you the questions so that you don't have to make them up. When you have a crisis, whatever it is, we're often so flooded, our brain gets flooded, we get in that fight or flight mode. And if we're in the flight mode, then we're not thinking logically and, and it's really hard to do that. So we need to, we need to call on resources and those resources are often in the system or family or friends. And I, I'm happy to chat with anybody, you know, for a brief period um, about what happened to me, but I think I fairly laid out in detail my story. Um, and I will end with this, which is so critical to my life now, which is a quote by Winston Churchill. Um, we make a living by what we get but we make a life by what we give. And I have been given an opportunity to help make lives better for 
thousands and thousands of people. Here, here. Great words. And I can't thank you enough for sharing your story here today, Molly, both in terms of what you've experienced firsthand. And as you said, all the wonderful people that you've been able to, uh, with so many others, help uh, support. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a wonderful staff and wonderful volunteers and amazing donors and corporate supporters who have made this all possible. As always, I'm joined by my co-host Shamika and a special uh, guest uh, co-host, Wendy Medrano. So glad both of you are joining us here today. And as we listen to Molly's story, there's just so much that comes up, so much inspiration. So we just wanted to reflect on a, a point each uh, that, that stood out to us. So I'll start with you, Shamika. Definitely. So one thing that stood out to me is she mentions that she was at one point going through the food bank and seeing some of her years from her son's school and how she was incredibly humiliated to be at the food bank and how she loved. And that's a definitely a relatable feeling. Sometimes it is incredibly hard to ask for help. And sometimes our pride doesn't allow us to ask for help when we need it the most. And that's a relatable and understanding feeling, but help definitely is out there for you. And it's totally okay to ask for help. And here at Green Path, we like to reiterate that too, that we are here for you and there's no shame in asking for the assistance when you need it. Yeah, I could, I could imagine there's like that additional aspect of just sort of being in a public setting, seeing people that you knew. And I know that's one of the things that, you know, I know how difficult it is for people to reach out to Green Path in and of itself but sort of the anonymity of a phone call uh you know it's maybe makes that a little bit easier but it's it's still a thing um one thing that i took away from it is at the beginning of her story she she talked about the amount of debt her family had gotten into uh which was obviously a shock to her she was unaware of it she mentioned they were 15 million dollars in debt and then gradually as her situation played out she really her mindset transformed and and she started to look at things and the value of things differently. And the, the, the next time uh, a million dollar figure came up uh, in the story was when she talked about the amount of dollars that have been um, used by the pink fund to support the people that they help. And that figure was 6.8 million. And I thought that was just such a beautiful symmetry. Not only the fact that just how full circle these large numbers came, but just to think about like the $15 million worth of debt was like one household's debt. The 6.8 million was helping just so many people in so many walks of life and just making such an outsized impact. It was just so cool to see. Uh, Wendy, what are what are some of your reflections? Yeah, I really appreciated how vulnerable Molly was in sharing her story. And um, in her story, I feel like I heard so many things that she was navigating that at the time I could imagine would make somebody feel a lot of uncertainty, but then also how those experiences led her to this point where she is today at the Pink Fund and got so much clarity and can speak from direct experience on things that can make a positive impact for people that the Pink Fund helps too. Yeah, yeah, just 
going from that that ambiguity that uh, uncertainty as you call it and then just gradually like kind of seeing the light and and recognizing that the people that her organization helps are faced with that same uncertainty and her just you know helping them walk through that so i thank you both um for just lifting up a little bit of what we heard and you know our hope is that just all of you listening are hopefully inspired uh, by molly's words can hopefully relate to uh, some of her experiences so thank you both for joining us thank you thank you thanks as always for listening if you'd like to learn more about the pink fund please visit www.pinkfund.org special thanks to hero for our theme music which will play us out Here's hoping each of you enjoy your journey of financial wellness as much as your destination. Well, welcome back, Hero.